Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would create in us clean and contrite hearts, and that you would renew a right spirit within us, that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation, that you would do so even in these moments through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the second Sunday in Lent, and as I introduced last week, we're in a six-week series in the Old Testament book of Judges. There are six major judges in the book of Judges, and last week we looked at the first two, Othniel and Ehud. Uh, The reading was long, much like this morning, and so thank you, Teresa. I think we need to give Teresa a round of applause. Gee, many Christmas. That was brutal. Uh, It is brutal and graphic in so many ways, just like last week. Ehud stabs an oppressive, obese king last week with the result that the short sword is closed in upon the fat around him, and he loses control of his bowels. The Bible says the dung came out, and some of you are offended. A couple of you asked, how could you have several sweet ladies read something like that? I was like, read something like what? The Bible? I didn't really say that. What I said was, yeah, I know judges is hard to digest. Just kidding. I didn't say that. That was for you, Aaron Keller. That was for you. Um, What I did say was, well, there's some other sweet ladies who are coming next week, and one of them drives a peg through a man's temple. The point is, is that in Judges, there's no break from being offended. And this week, we come to Deborah and Barak. Deborah is a prophetess who judges Israel because of the unique gifts that the Lord has given to her. Barak is this warrior that the Lord uses to deliver Israel at Deborah's direction, And Barak is mentioned in the Old Testament Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, alongside Abraham and Moses and David and others. And this morning, I want to ask why. And so three points, the closeness of sin, the role of women, and the question of Barak. So first of all, the closeness of sin. The first three verses here are the introduction to this story, and they also form an inclusio with the last few verses. An inclusio is just a fancy literary word for bookend. And what especially bookends this passage is the name entitled Jabin, king of Canaan. It's introduced in verse two, then it comes three different times. Bam, bam, bam. The very end of this passage in order to emphasize that the king of Canaan, Jabin, is utterly, completely defeated. And that Jabin is the king of Canaan displays something that I mentioned last week. And that is as we move through judges, the oppressors come from closer and closer in. The first oppressor was from Mesopotamia, some 700 or so miles away in modern-day Iraq. The second oppressor comes from just on the other side of the Dead Sea from Moab, so closer. And Canaan 
is the promised land. It is the land that will become the land of Israel. And so Jabin represents the very closest and most familiar of the judges because as we move through this book, the enemies come closer and closer in. The book moves us more and more inward. And so too does Lent. In part because we all know the tendency to want to focus on what is exterior to us as the main problem that we conceive of in our life. We think, oh, the main problem is the increasing secularism of our culture, or it's the political climate, or it's that political party, or it's that group of people, or it's racism, or it's the, the loss of the family and divorce and disintegration of the family, or it's social media or pornography or substance abuse or something. But whatever it is, it's out there. It's exterior to me and somehow abstract and at a distance to me. But judges won't let us do that. It objects to any effort on our behalf of trying to abstract or distance the evil of the world from us, and especially does so with this name, Jabin, king of Canaan, because he's the enemy that's from within the bounds and within the boundaries of Israel. And in him, we're meant to see the enemy that is within us all. As I often tell you, sin is a alien spiritual power. Yes, it is something that is beyond us, greater than us, from outside of us, but it has come in. It's not simply rebellion or lawbreaking or wrongdoing. Those are the results, but it is an alien spiritual power that has come in and taken up residence within us and has seeded itself and spread itself all throughout every aspect of our being, and it won't go away. We all know that. And in fact, Jabin is someone that Israel knows. They have faced him before. In Joshua chapter 11, they faced Jabin, same guy. And they defeat him, supposedly, but here he returns. Because in him, we're meant to see the spiritual reality that as long as we live in this world, no victory or no, no victory or complete defeat of evil will ever happen. It will ever be complete. That is what this name teaches us, the renewed aggression of an old enemy. And we all know that each of us have certain expressions of the power of sin that are uniquely primary to us that are our Jabin of Canaan. For some of us, it's anger. For others of us, it's greed or gluttony or some one of the seven deadly sins. Last Lent, we preached a series on the seven deadly sins. Go listen to that sermon series or read the book Glittering Vices by Rebecca DeYoung. If it's not listed there, it may be fear for you. It may be insecurity. It may be self-doubt or self-hatred because of something that's happened to you or something that you've done, some abuse that you've endured some failure. And so you won't love yourself. You can't love yourself or it's inordinate competitiveness, the lack of kindness that results or condescension towards those who are different than you or who have failed or who have less than you or something. I don't know what it is, but it's something for you. It's something for us all. For me, it's vanity. How I look in public, how I perform even here with vanity, you're not so concerned with being great, but with looking great. And that is something that will always be with me, restrained to greater or lesser degrees at different times, but never not there, and will be with me until I die. And it's something with you too. You have your Jabin. We all do. So what is it for you? It's the closeness of sin. Secondly, the role of women. Now, do not get too excited. I'm not going to dive into all the complexities and controversies of women leadership in the church this morning. But if you want to talk to me about that, I would love to talk to you about that. I have that conversation often. So please let me know, and I would love to. But let me just say a couple of things. One, 
that women take center stage here and they lead. Deborah is a prophetess like Miriam, Moses's sister before her. And Jael is this murderess. We call her that. She kills someone and Note that it's someone who has cruelly abused Israel for more than two decades. Then chapter five comes right after this chapter. There is a song that is sung throughout the entire chapter. It's a song about this victory that happens in chapter four. And in chapter five, verse 30, the song alludes to the raping of women in Israel carried out by these men and their armies. The song sings, have they not found and divided the spoil a woman or two for every man? Horrible things. And so it's fitting that here in chapter four, we see that women are God's main lead and means of deliverance here because they've been the greatest sufferers. But let me also say that this book of Judges is not one that we want to pattern our lives after or our relationships after or our organizations after. This is a low point in the history of the people of God, maybe the lowest point in the entire Old Testament. And I was at a meeting on Monday that made me wonder if we, people of God today, the church in general across America, all Christians, If we're at a similarly low point in our history, Robert Kim, who's a professor at Covenant Seminary, where I went to seminary, he spoke at a a church planting network meeting for us, and he threw out some statistics that caught my attention. The first was one that I've shared with you already, and that is that in 2006, when I graduated from Covenant, I graduated with 70 MDiv, Masters of Divinity, ordination track guys that wanted to go into the pastorate. And this last year at Covenant, less than 10 graduated. Also in 2014, 4,000 churches across the United States closed, but 3,700 new churches were planted, so a net loss of 300. But in 2019, before the pandemic, 4,500 churches closed, and only 3,000 were planted. And so the delta between the two went from a 300 net loss to a 1,500 net loss. And of course, many of those churches that had that have closed, have abandoned the the historic Christian faith and orthodoxy, and they've been spiritually dead or dying, theologically dead for a long, long time on some sort of like ecclesial hospice. And so it's not surprising that they closed, but I think we have to recognize that one of the reasons that we have a church are growing and churches like us are at the expense of the church as a whole, because faithful Christians are leaving unfaithful churches and they're looking for churches that still minister the gospel. So they're coming here and elsewhere. So we're growing, but at the expense of the church as a whole. And our denomination, the PCA, it's been one of the fastest growing denominations uh, in the last, well, 45, 50 years. It started in 1974, the year before I was born. And from 1993 to 2019, we planted on average 50 new churches per year. But in 2020, only 25 were planted, so half that. And in 2021, only 16. So we've been on a steep decline recently. And another statistic, although I don't think this holds exactly true for us, the general trend does hold. And that is 80% of all Christian giving is done by people 65 years old or older. So what are we going to do in 15 to 20 years? We need to build our sanctuary real quick. (laughs) But it does make me think that judges is far more relevant to us than we'd like to think or like to admit and the low point that they represent can inform us and what is potential, potentially our low point. So what about the role of, the women, of these women here in this passage? Why do they have this role? They do so in part because they present and continue a pattern that's found throughout the scriptures. And that is that the Lord most often uses that which is smallest and weakest and least impressive and most despised in the eyes of the world to do his work in it. 
Because Jabin and Sisera would have laughed at Israel for being led by a woman. They would have mocked her. They would have mocked all of them. Because this type of weakness makes no sense to a worldly mind. And so take any other religion, any other philosophy, any other faith, drill down to the very core of it, the very center of it, and ask honestly, what is at the very center? And what you will find, I argue, is strength or power or size or some sort of self-generated ability. In certain ways, all modern Western philosophy is a footnote to Frederick Nietzsche, who despised Christianity because of our emphasis upon weakness. Nietzsche famously said, Christianity remains to this day the greatest misfortune of humanity. It's saying a lot. He said the Christian movement was from the start no more than a general uprising of all sorts of outcasts and refuse elements. It appealed to all the varieties of men who'd failed in life. Christianity has the rancor of the sick at its very core, the instinct against the healthy, against health. And by health, he means strength. He means personal, self-generated strength and size and power. In fact, he's not all that wrong, not entirely wrong. Because in the scriptures, it's Jacob who's chosen, the younger brother, the weaker brother, over Esau, who's the man's man, the big man, the hunter, the outdoorsman. And then it's Joseph later in Genesis. Again, the youngest of the brothers who's chosen and not all the older ones. And then in in Exodus, it's Moses who's chosen to speak for God. The man has a speech impediment and he's chosen to be the mouthpiece of God. And then later it's David, again, the youngest of the littlest brothers. Samuel comes to his dad and says, one of your sons is going to be king. He parades all of his sons through before Samuel, except David. He could never imagine it would be David. Too young, too little, too insignificant. And then in New Testament, it's Mary who's chosen to bear God in her womb, a poor peasant, teenage girl from a tiny town that nobody cared about. Nobody had ever heard of. And then the apostle Paul in first Corinthians one, he interprets all of this, the entire Bible in so many ways. When he writes, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to change, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. There's the reason for these women. That no human might boast in the presence of God. That is Judges 4, exactly. That is Deborah. That is Jael. And that is you or will be you if you would be a Christian or you are a Christian. At some point, that is you as well. Let's look at Jael's part. It begins in verse 11, where the author slips in that random guy, Hebner, Hebner, just, he just happens to separate away from his tribe and move north. And no details are given to this, this little explanation, or no explanation is given to this detail. But later we say that Jael is Hebner's wife and that she's been perfectly placed, perfectly providentially placed by God to carry out his designs and his plan to deliver his people and to punish these brutal, raping, powerful oppressors and to do so through a weakling. Sisera never imagined that he, this, this great, powerful warrior in general, could be in danger before her, someone so small and so insignificant. In verse 20, he tells her, if any man comes to the tent, notice that. If any man comes to the tent, tell him, this man, no one is here. So ironic on so many levels, but at least two, that one, no man will need to come because the woman that, he, that the Lord is going to you is, is already there. And she won't have to lie 
and say that no one's in the tent because when a man finally shows up, no one will be in the tent because he will be dead because she lures him in. In verse 18, it's such an artfully told story. In verse 18, she tells him, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, little man. She covers him with a rug. She tucks him in like she would tuck in a child. In verse 19, she even gives him a little bit of milk to drink. She treats him like this baby in her hands until in verse 21, she goes to him softly, like someone only who is small could do. And then she drives a peg into the corner of his head. The text says until it went down into the ground. It sounds like she struck the peg multiple times until verse 21 ends very blithely. And so he died. So he died. Well, of course he died. He had a temple. His temple struck through with a peg. And the emphasis here is on the Lord, squarely on the Lord, his presence, his plan, his work, and his strength so that no one could boast in the Lord seen in the weakness of this woman. When I was little, my favorite TV show was The Lone Ranger. It was the first TV show that I could remember watching. And when it came on, I would, I would dress up, wear a mask and a, and a hat and take in a rope. And I even had some, some, some Tonto paraphernalia. I had this long Native American spear that was really just a stick that kind of had a sharp point on the end of it. And I was watching The Lone Ranger one day, and my mom asked me to pick up all my stuff, take it back to my room, which I did. So I loaded everything up in my arms, including the stick, the spear, but I put it in my mouth sharp end first. And as I'm walking back, tripped and I shoved that stick up back through the back of my throat. It was my Cicera moment. Uh, And and I was fine. No long-term damage. It was my first ER trip, all because of the Lone Ranger. But if you know the Lone Ranger, you know, the TV show always ends with at least two things happening. Number one, there's something that's always said. You remember what's said? Number one, he gets on his horse and he says, There we go. Y'all are the most emphatic of all the services. Well done. Yes. Hi-ho silver away. And then he always leaves something behind. And what does he leave? A silver bullet. That silver bullet is a sign that he had been there. In fact, it's an explanation to everyone who came after him, what had happened and how it is that what resulted could have resulted, that the bad guys were caught, the the ladies, the children were safe, the herd was secure, the, the bank money had been returned because the lone ranger had been there. He had done it, and the silver bullet was the proof. It was the sign of the, Lord, of the lone ranger's presence and work, and that's what Jael is. This is exactly her. She is a sign that the Lord had been there. She is his silver bullet. This sign and this explanation that he had destroyed Sisera because no other explanation was possible. No other explanation is needed so that no one could boast. Because if Barak had showed up, he could boast. If he had showed up, burst into the tent and had this epic major motion picture fight and he had killed Sisera, then everyone would have said, of course. The great warrior, of course, Barak is strong. He's powerful. Of course, he he defeated and he destroyed Sisera. That's the way the world works. The strong always win. And that's what we need. We need to be strong. Because being strong in the world is the way that you win in the world. And that's the goal. Winning in the world is the goal and strength is the way. No, it's not. Winning in this world is not the goal. And human strength is not the way. Relying on your own strength will eventually get your head nailed to the ground with a peg. And some of you know that very well because that's where you are right now. You've tried self-reliance tried to live by your own wisdom and own wits and own work. You've relied upon your own capacity and done what is right in your own eyes. And now you're lying on the ground in a tent with a peg through your skull. It's 
the way of Jabin and Canaan and Sisera. And eventually it won't work. Eventually you will reap what you've sowed. And that's where some of you are. You've, you've failed. You've gone this way. You were strong. You were confident. But now there's no life or little to no life left within you. In your marriage, in your family, with your children, with school or work or your sexual life or your friends or your family because you've lived by your own word and way and your own wisdom. And now you realize it's foolishness and it's pride. And it's a path that ends with, with no real life possible. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because the Lord can raise you up for there. All too often, the Lord always takes us down in order to raise us up. So often he has to. And that's what we see in Barak. So point three, the question of Barak. Any guesses to why Barak's in the hall of fame for faith in Hebrews 11? It's not because he's the hero of this story. He's not the hero. He doesn't catch or kill the bad guy. He shows up after all the catching and the killing is done, which is exactly what Deborah told him would happen. In verses six through seven, Deborah tells Barak that this is what the Lord has said, that this is what the Lord has commanded him to do, that the Lord is going to give Sisera and Jabin into his hand. And what does Barak do in verse eight? He balks. He doesn't give a clear, emphatic yes. He gives stipulations. He, he'll, he says he'll follow the Lord if... Deborah goes with him. If there's some, there's some qualifications, if there's some guarantees, he's not confident that he and his men can go and do what the Lord has said that, that the Lord is going to do from them, even though the Lord has promised. He's not confident, so he balks. He refuses to listen and to follow God's word as it's given to him. He adds to it. He tries to strike a bargain with God. He says, I will go with you. I will follow your word if. And we all do this. I'll listen to your word and I'll follow you if. I'll remain faithful to my spouse. I'll maintain, I'll keep my marriage vows if. I'll continue to believe in you and follow you and worship you as my God if you do this for me. You give me a spouse. You give me children. You give me happy children. You give me success in my job or wealth or success in school or, or comfort or ease. You give me anything other than difficulty and suffering. Because if you give me difficulty and suffering, I'm probably going to say, well, I can't believe that the Lord or that God really exists because how could a good God exist if there's so much suffering in this world? And when people say that, they're talking about their own suffering. How can God exist if I'm suffering like this? So I'm suffering like this. He must not exist. I'll believe in you and I'll follow you if. It's sinful doubt. Not all doubt is sinful, but this is. It's an attempt to control and to direct the parameters and the details of his life and his relationship with God to arrest that control and that direction from God himself. Barack wants veto power over what he thinks are the Lord's suggestions. They're not suggestions. The Lord doesn't make suggestions. Verse six says, has the Lord not commanded you? The Lord doesn't make suggestions to Barack. Barack thinks that that's what it is and he wants a guarantee that the Lord will, sit, will do what he said he's gonna do. And that's why I want Deborah to go with him. And in verse nine, she says, fine, I'll go. But you will not receive the glory of the victory. You refuse to participate as the Lord had called you to participate. And therefore you will forfeit the role that the Lord had for you. That role, that glory will go to another. And it does. So why is Barak in the Old Testament Hall of Fame? 
Because of this. Because even though he heard that he had forfeited and given up his glory, forfeited that role and given it up, he still went. When the Lord called upon him through Deborah in verse 14 to get up, follow and act because the Lord was with him and going before him, he got up and he went, even though he knew that another person would receive the glory. Even though he knew that he chose to be faithful, even though another would be glorified and that is it. That's why he's in the hall of fame. That is it exactly. That's why he's there because that is our life as Christians. We see it in Barak. We're not perfect. You know that? Not even close. We're incredibly flawed. So often doubting. And in our sinful doubting, we, we're very much like James 1 speaks. It says too, too double-minded there. It really means two souls. Lifting up our hearts to so many different things. Flawed, doubting, weak in so many ways. But in the end, what it means to be a Christian is to hear his word, to answer it, to get up, to believe and to follow and to trust that the Lord is going before you. And that's enough. It's not about your glory. It's about the Lord's presence, his promises, his, his kindness to you. And it is enough. Barak is in the Old Testament Hall of Fame because that's who he is and because we see Jesus in him. In fact, in combination with Sisera, we especially see Jesus because we have two men who each give up something. One gives up his glory and the other gives up his life. And Jesus gave up both on the cross. On the cross, he was seen as despised and ridiculed, as weak, as pathetic. He was treated as no one, as nothing. Everything that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, everything that Paul says, but it's through his weakness, Jesus's weaknesses, that the infinite, unconquerable power of God was put on display for all men to see. Because at the cross and through Jesus's death, God was not only forgiving our sin, but breaking sin's power and hold over us. In his death, God was driving a peg through the head of sin and death and Satan so that we might once again be his, so that you might be his. And so friends, do not doubt that God is with you. Do not doubt that he is with you and that he is for you. Jesus and his resurrection are the Lord's silver bullet. In fact, you are a silver bullet. You are the sign and you are the explanation that, that all of what we believe is true, that your life and how God is perfecting and demonstrating his power through your weakness, that is the silver bullet to the world, that he is real, that he is present, that he is at work. All that he's done in your life, all that he's forgiven you for, all that he's freed you from, all that he has reconciled you to, all of the relationships, the marriages in this room, the friendships in this room, the family relationships in this room, all the little yet impossible victories that you have known and seen, they're the undeniable signs of the Lord's reality and his presence and his power, as well as his grace and his kindness and his love for you. So get up and join in and participate in all that the Lord is already doing in your life and the lives of those around you. Even in this church, get up and by faith, do what is right in his eyes, according to his word, because he loves you and he has redeemed you and he wants to use you, even you. Yes, even you. He has providentially placed you perfectly where he wants you to be so that he might use you. Just like Jael, he's placed you there to use you. And so give your glory up. Give up your life, give up your glory, get up, follow the one who has already given up his life and his glory for you and been raised from the dead for you. He is with you. He fights for you. He wants to use you. And so get up and follow the one who has already gotten up for you.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that in and through your word, by your spirit, we would see these beautiful things that are true, that are true of the, of the gospel of Jesus, but are also true of us. We pray that you would give us the courage to follow where you lead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.